Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. It's a great day to be alive. You knew that too. And let's turn it around if it's not going in the right direction. Not your car, not your walk, but mindset. Like, let's turn it back around. And yeah, when I say that, by the way, and I may have said this before in the past, so forgive me. When you listen to somebody talking to a microphone, you're going to hear them say the same things. I listened to an interview of myself the other day. I say whatever a lot, apparently. Anyway, we're going to talk about mindset today. We're going to talk about it via an encore episode with author Ryan Holiday, who wrote the books, Ego is the Enemy, The Obstacle is the Way, and Stillness is the Key, which was about to come out when I spoke to Ryan back in late 2019. Before we get to that interview, I want to tell you Hey, guess what I have coming up? Comedy shows, actual, real, live comedy shows. These are socially distanced. These are for people who wear underwear on their face. That is masks. If your underwear is clean, fine with me. I don't care. Let's see what's coming up. March 19th through 21st, I'll be on the Best of Atlanta show at the Laughing Skull Lounge in Midtown Atlanta. April 1st through 3rd, I will be at the Omni Comedy Club at the Battery in the Omni Hotel at the Battery just outside 285 there in Atlanta. You can see links to those shows in the show notes. They are being sold on laughingskulllounge.com. I also have shows that I can't talk about just yet, but suffice to say that if you're going to go see some live music here in Atlanta, or if you're going to be at a country club on April 15th and 16th, you might just see my middle-aged dehydrated face. Hey, guess what I did today? I signed up for the vaccine. I'm excited. I am looking forward to it. It is a week away. I can't wait to feel superior to people who don't have it. I might just go and uh, nuzzle up to some public faucets and drinking fountains just to celebrate, as Dennis Miller says, the deposed death spore. I get it. It's not over. I get it. It's not over. But it is encouraging that we're getting a lot of vaccines into people's bodies. What's happened here in the state of Georgia is that this week, the governor opened it up to people. Now, before it was like for medical personnel, teachers, people over 65. As of this week, people who have certain conditions, people who have a body mass index over a certain level are now qualified for the vaccine. I am qualified because I have a heart condition known as coronary artery disease, which I'm managing. Thanks for your concern. All's well. Here's something I learned today. Just because you're trying to save her life doesn't mean it's a good idea to suggest to your wife that her BMI qualifies her for the vaccine. That's something I learned today. And by the way, I don't think my wife's BMI qualifies for the vaccine. Dare I say it, I thought she could sneak her way in to get it before she was qualified. Did I say that? Oh my gosh, did I say that? Did I tell my wife to skip the line? Well, that's what James Altucher would say, skip the line. Wouldn't he say that? I think the point is, is like, I think at this point, we should be giving the vaccine to whoever wants it. Line them up, folks. Let's not focus so much on fairness and optics of fairness that we're denying the vaccine to people who want it. If you don't know yet, by the way, make sure you're Googling Georgia vaccines here in Georgia or wherever you are, because you might be eligible sooner than you think. Okay, let's talk about Ryan Holiday. Like I said, I recorded this interview with Ryan back in, uh, I think it was September of 2019, and it came out October 1st, 2019. And I'm sharing it with you again. I've only done like five or six Encore episodes in two years. So if you're disappointed today, go listen to an episode you haven't listened to. I guarantee you there are numerous amazing interviews that I've put my time into 
to bring to you. So go back and scroll through the interviews and listen to one you haven't. If you haven't heard this interview with Ryan, and even if you had, it's worth your time to revisit because the stuff he talks about really, really matters. That state of mind that we all find ourselves in. We were traveling last week. I got frustrated with a person who was helping me get our car and it was late and we had a plane to catch and I didn't freak out, but I wasn't as polite as I could have been. And being able to control yourself in the moment of stress is something that separates, I think, the good from the great people, you know? And Ryan talks about that because what he's talking about is a feeling of stillness, being able to control what's happening in our heads, keeping our wits about them. In the book, Stillness is the Key. Ryan Holiday is the author of more than 10 books. I can't keep count because he keeps releasing these books on his website, but he sold over 2 million copies worldwide. He's been translated into 30 languages. World-class athletes, celebrities, and political leaders use his lessons to achieve peak performance. His 2014 book, The Obstacle is the Way, was read by the New England Patriots during the 2014 Super Bowl winning season and by four-time major golf champion Rory McIlroy, as preparation for the 2019 Masters Tournament. In this conversation, Ryan shares how each of us can find wisdom in our lives by slowing down and quieting those barking dogs in our head. They're not just behind the neighbor's fence, they're mostly in our head. Ryan Holiday is also the founder of Daily Stoic, a community of 200,000 plus people dedicated to leading better lives by contemplating the ancient philosophy of Stoicism. You can see a link to dailystoic.com in the show notes. And if you sign up there, you'll get a daily email from Ryan with a very short reminder of how stoicism might apply to that coming day. One caveat for this interview, again, was recorded in 2019. There's a very brief discussion of what was politically relevant at the time. In my evolution as a podcaster since then, I have made a point of not going to the political Because what I care about here is our relationship with money, our relationship with ourselves, and not polarizing things like politics. But I'm not going to edit it out. I don't think that would be a forthright thing to do. If it offends you, it lasts for two seconds. Don't sweat it, folks. This, my friends, is my interview with Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday, welcome to Crazy Money. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ryan, you're probably best known for the modern person most responsible for returning the conversation back to the philosophy of Stoicism. What is Stoicism and when did you start reading the Stoics? Well, actually, it was a guest on your podcast that introduced me to Stoicism. I was in college and I was at a conference and afterwards I went up to Dr. Drew, who was the speaker, And I said, hey, what are you reading? Is there anything you think I should read? And he happened to be reading the Stoics at that moment. And so it was just a right place, right time kind of moment. And I went back to my hotel room and I bought these two books and they ended up changing the course of my life. At that point, I was probably not unlike a lot of the people listening. I thought Stoicism meant having no emotions. That's what the word Stoic means. And I was vaguely familiar with who Marcus Aurelius was from the movie Gladiator and that's about all that's about all that I knew. So this idea that it was a very practical philosophy that sort of explained how one ought to go through life, you know, what to do, what not to do, what kind of person to be, how to deal with the very real sort of contradictory desires and urges and forces that we all have was certainly not what I was expecting when I got this random book recommendation. But that's what stoicism ultimately is. The sort of definition I give people now is I say, 
you know, the Stoics believe we don't control what happens to us, but we always control how we respond. And their sort of quick set of principles for responding were basically just four different virtues. They believed in courage, justice, wisdom, and temperance or moderation. And that's basically all the philosophy is. And you've written, this is your third or fourth book, depending on how you define it, about Stoicism. The others were Ego is the Enemy, The Obstacle is the Way, and a collection of thoughts from Daily Stoic, correct? Yes, and then I, I did a journal that is a collection of Stoic sort of weekly thoughts and then a daily prompt inspired by Stoicism as well. So your most recent book is Stillness is the Key. And I want to get deep into this because I think it's really important. How do you define stillness? You know, it's one of those words I think somewhat defies quick or easy definition, but I think that's kind of why it's so powerful. It's one of those things, you know, they say you know it when you see it, but I think stillness is this sort of moment when everything slows down, when you get clarity, when you have a flash of self-awareness, when you have a flash of perspective, when all of your faculties are directed at the task in front of you when you're fully present. The Stoics' definition of stillness is basically those moments when we're not being jerked around by external or internal forces, when we have some level of sort of equanimity or serenity or calmness. So I think, you know, when you throw all that out there, you can kind of approximate what stillness is. To me, it's something certainly every person in the world has experienced, some of us more so than others. And I think those of us who've experienced quite a lot of it know it to be a pretty ephemeral, fleeting feeling that's unfortunately a, a bit too rare. You talk about peace within oneself, yeah. the concept apathia. Mm -hmm. So if you were to try to make that as a quick jump to English, that is not apathy right. as we know it today. No, no, it's sort of the opposite of apathy, right? Apathy is sort of like, I don't care. It's a sort of almost willful disengagement with the world. Apatheia is the state you get to, I think, through sort of active work on oneself and one's surroundings so that it doesn't matter what's happening in the outside world. You are in that state of serene sort of calmness and self-control. I open the book with a story, and I think it's pretty relatable to all of us. But basically, Seneca, who speaks a lot about apatheia, he's in Rome trying to write this letter, and he's staying above this sort of noisy gymnasium, and he's sort of cataloging just all the noise that's pouring in through the windows. You know, there's construction <laughs> going on, and there's street vendors, and there's children running and playing, and there's a man getting arrested downstairs, and he can hear sort of weightlifters throwing weights downstairs. You can hear people jumping in and out of the pool. You can hear people getting massages. You can hear groans and grunts. And he basically goes, you know, it sort of reminds you of, I think, those like afternoons in New York City where you're just like, oh, my God, how can anyone live here? This is horrendous. Um, <laughs> and he's writing about how even with all of this going on, a truly wise sort of disciplined person has to be able to cultivate the ability to shut all of that out and to focus on whatever the task is in front of them. He sort of hints at this. But what's so interesting about that scene is that as chaotic as it was outside, Seneca's personal life is also in this state of upheaval, and he's somehow able to push through all of that and write these letters that we're still talking about 2,000 years later. So apathy, again, is not the absence of caring. It's actually sort of caring so intensely that you're able to tune everything else out that doesn't matter 
away and, and focus on whatever the task you're doing is. I think what's really interesting about reading the Stoics is that you're reading the words of these 2,000-year-old men, and the problems they're struggling with are the same things we're struggling with today. The noise for Seneca was literal, but the real noise he's talking about is metaphorical and the noise inside of our heads. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one, I think when shortly after Dr. Drew introduced me to Stoicism, I would say probably the passage that struck me most from Marcus Aurelius to the point that as a, you know, a 19 year old, I typed it up and I printed it out and put it on my wall. But opening book five in meditations, Marcus Aurelius has this dialogue with himself about getting out of bed early in the morning and how he'd rather stay under the covers and be warm, but he has to go to work. He's sort of questioning, what is it about either the sort of lack of respect he has for himself or the lack of respect he has for his obligations or duties? You know, he wants to spend another couple hours in bed, even though he's had a good night's sleep. And so we can think, because today we have social media, or we have nuclear weapons, or we have any, any of these sort of modern inventions, that we're dealing with this totally new set of problems And in fact, we're basically just dealing with the same problems we've always dealt with. If anything, our problems are less now than they were then. And we've always struggled to push through them. I mean, my favorite quote in the whole book is a quote from Blaise Pascal, where he says, like, all of man's problems stem from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone. You know, that was in the year 1500. And so it's always been hard not to reach into your pocket and grab something. It's just today we can grab an iPhone or Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is. Yeah, I think our importance are sort of less existential from an immediate threat standpoint. And yet the trivial makes itself urgent constantly in our day. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, there's certainly health problems. You know, people are turn on the news and you're scared about Ebola or you're scared about Zika. (laughs) It's like literally tens of millions of people died in like a five-year period from the plague in Marcus Aurelius's reign. So I think what's interesting is the Stoics talk about how history is just the same thing happening over and over and over again, and that we should have some humility about this and some perspective, and we shouldn't get so worked up about things. I just read Gerald Ford's memoir that he published Mm. after he left the presidency. Surprise loses the election to Jimmy Carter, and he writes this thing. And anyways, I was struck by this one page where he was talking about how the Department of Justice had become so politicized and how dangerous that was and how he had worked to put in a number of reforms after Nixon to depoliticize the Department of Justice. And you're like, okay, people have been waking up worried about the exact same problems that CNN is freaking out about this morning. That's not to say they're not real problems, but like, we have always been under the impression that the world is ending, and it so far, it hasn't. You discuss anecdotes from history in your book, everything from JFK using stillness to get us through the Cuban Missile Crisis to a professional baseball player who used slowing down as a way yeah, to recover from a slump. Can you briefly explain how JFK and Sean Green used slowing down to get through some of the crises in their lives? Yeah, I mean, what's so remarkable about something like the Cuban Missile Crisis is that there was no consensus at the time about what Kennedy should do. In fact, actually, that's not true. There was a consensus. The consensus was that the United States needed to blow Cuba off of the map and that there was there was almost no time to hesitate or even consider any other option. Right. Like the, the military leaders in the United States were unanimous, as were the leaders of both houses of Congress most of Kennedy's advisors, and so were most of the ex-presidents. They were like, yeah, you got to blow up Cuba. Kennedy was the only one who said, 
you know, what happens after that? He's like, if Russia blew up one of our allies, I would be forced to retaliate, right? Like, even if I had been doing things there, I would not be able to tolerate this. And he says something like, look, I'm not so worried about the next step. I'm worried about like the seventh or eighth step. And he's like, I'm worried that you guys who think you're so right are in the convenient position of if you turn out to be wrong, no one will be able to hold you accountable because we'll all be dead. And so what Kennedy was able to do is go, do we have to make this decision right now? Not that he delayed so much, but he knew that this had probably been a rash move by the Russians. He knew that he didn't yet understand why they'd done what they'd done, and that perhaps forcing the issue, adding more urgency to the situation was only going to escalate it and make it worse. And one of Kennedy's favorite expressions, he said, I like to use time as a tool and not as a couch. And so the brilliance of the missile crisis is how Kennedy buys his opponent time repeatedly to come to his senses. You know, he doesn't immediately strike. Then he takes the issue to the U.N. Then he announces that he's going to put a quarantine around Cuba, which is itself called a quarantine, not a blockade, you know, to be less aggressive. It's like a 250 mile quarantine. But then he he realizes maybe Russia doesn't quite even realize that he's serious yet. So he expands it to 500 miles. Actually, the other way around, he shrinks it to give them more time. Just repeatedly, he's like, look, let's let cooler heads prevail here. Let's not react emotionally. Let's not do the obvious thing. And in giving himself time to think, he gives the opponent time to think. And ultimately, Khrushchev comes to his senses. It's probably the closest that the world has has ever come to nuclear war to, you know, sort of catastrophic mutual annihilation. And this comes because Kennedy is the only one who has the sort of discipline not to react emotionally and the foresight to sort of slow things down and and to think about the big picture. That was a really interesting perspective. And you see it in the current news cycle, the political world all the time, you know, where people rush to judgment. We, especially in an accelerated news cycle with social media today, you talked about the CNN fact from whatever, 20 years ago. Well, the Facebook effect is the CNN effect on steroids, right? Kennedy had 13 days to solve the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, now it's like you'd have like 13 minutes and it'd be like a tweet war of heads of state going back and forth. Like not just the communications that go back and forth between Khrushchev are like pages and pages. You know, these heads of states writing these long telegrams to each other or whatever Mm -hmm. the communication was exactly sort of between a fax and a telegram, I guess. But anyways... You know, the idea that you could negotiate something as complex as this in 280 characters is like just, I think, encapsulates just how preposterous our public discourse has come at this point. That's ultimately what it takes to solve really difficult problems. You know, I tell the story in the book about Sean Green, one of the great home run hitters of our time. There's this line from Yogi Berra, he says it's impossible to think and hit at the same time. You know, it's really hard to do these things and they take a lot of space and they require a lot of nuance and they require people who have the stillness and the wisdom to be able to navigate that. The person who thinks that they know what they're doing, reacting intuitively all the time, this is the kind of person that makes those sort of catastrophic errors or ends up escalating a situation. That part of the book is, I think, these are obviously old stories, but they are very much of the moment in the sense that we are struggling to come to terms with the fact that technology may have actually made our problems worse and not better. And what did Sean Green do specifically to 
to change a, a situation he was in by slowing down. Well, so one of the things that happens when you're in a slump in sports is that your mind starts racing, right? You mm. are trying harder and harder to get back to where you were before. But the irony is before it was effortless. And so now, you know, it's like if you've ever played golf, like the harder you try to be good at golf, the worse you are at golf. And that's yes. that, that tends to be pretty common in sports. But I think also in life, you know, when I hear about people, they're like, I've booked aside the, the next two weeks and I'm going to write my book. I'm like, that's going to be a crappy book, not just because it takes longer than two weeks, but the idea that you have left no room there, there's no margin for error. You're going to go into it thinking you need to force it. And you're going to end up coming out with something that shows that. And what Sean Green was able to do is sort of relax and step back. He clears his mind, develops a really clear batting practice. He even goes back, if you've ever watched Major League Batting Practice, they're just hitting pitches off the pitching machine. He actually gets a tee, like a t-ball tee, and just starts practicing over and over again just his swing. He just wants to get back to the purity of the game. You know, he repeats that Zen expression, chop wood, carry water to himself. The idea is he wanted to be thinking about absolutely nothing at all. And I think what's so interesting about this is he ends up turning the streak around. He has this game in 2002 that's maybe the single greatest batting performance in the history of baseball. He hits like six home runs in one game. It's like madness. (laughs) It's just unreal. But anyways, in this game... He goes from having been in a slump to having the performance of his life, like within two pitches, right? And you can watch, he's writing about it in his diary, but like you can see how quickly the mind goes from being like this voice whispering in your ear that you're a piece of shit and you're going to get fired to, oh my God, you're amazing. You're going to break a record. (laughs) And you know, and none of this is helpful, right? You have 400 milliseconds to hit a major league pitch. You shouldn't be thinking about anything at all except for where your feet are and where the bat is. And Mm -hmm. so it's a similar thing to Kennedy. It's about slowing things down. It's about pushing away distraction. And it's about, you know, focusing on the task in front of you. So for those of us who are not presidents facing existential crises or major league ball players playing in front of millions of people, what are the advantages of slowing down? I mean, I think presence, like all these things we do are really hard. And this idea that you can do it and another thing at the same time is just, I think, arrogance. Like, it's funny, I'll I'll do podcasts with people and it's like, it's clear that they're not listening to my answer. They're thinking about the next question that they're going to ask or they're fiddling. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Of course, I hope not. Or they're they're (laughs) fiddling around with things on their computer. They're checking audio levels. They're not present. And this idea of presence, I think, is something that we've lost. Or when we think presence... You know, we think like presence in the Buddhist sense, right? It's like thinking of nothing at all, being on a five-day silent meditation retreat. And that's all well and good, but ultimately you have to come back and you have to make a living and you have to do work. And so I'm more interested in how is one present while they are giving a staff meeting or, you know, leading a training session or trading stocks or doing things in the real world. I, I think that idea of presence, if it helps you hit a 95 mile an hour fastball better, I think it's going to help you make it through an argument with your wife. The skill is the difficult thing is the difficult thing. And very few things are hurt by being more present as you do them. Mm. So you shouldn't argue with your wife over text. Is that what you're saying? Uh, Yes. Or I mean, how often are you having a seemingly regular conversation that escalates to a serious conversation that escalates to a full blown fight? you sort of slept walked into because you were, you know, checking, <laughs> checking your email at the same time. 
and right, wasn't quite right. paying attention to the slowly escalating body language or, or, or whatever. Yeah, you could talk about that all day long. And, and the fact that we substitute remote conversation for actual presence when you can pick up on all the physical cues instead of saying, hey, this is a conversation we should have in person. Right. You kind of fire off that tasty, feels good reply that you know you're going to regret later. Yeah, or, or even <laughs> just like, we really don't need to have this conversation at all. We're just both upset. And if we waited yeah. six hours until we saw each other, it wouldn't even come up because we'd have That's moved right. on to something else. Like you see this in sports all the time. An athlete comes off a game and they're hot or, you know, someone catches them with a microphone or they're uh -huh. on their phone. I mean, Donald Trump is this embodied. You don't have to tweet this. Like there's no gun to your head that says you have to share the thoughts that you have as you're having them. And in fact, if you waited a little bit, if you gave it some distance, you might find you don't even agree with that thing you thought six hours ago and you wouldn't have kicked off this entire firestorm or controversy because you lack the self-control to stop yourself. Well, that presupposes that that's not part of his strategy in the first place. But I don't think crazy people have strategies. But yes, I, I get what you're saying. If we have time at the end, we'll go there because I do want to hear what the author of Trust Me, I'm Lying thinks about the president's yeah. tweeting strategy. But before we go there, what we're talking about, though, is sort of like stillness as a process. And you talk about focusing on process as opposed to focusing on outcomes. Sure. How can routine be helpful in getting still? I talk to writers and they'll go, oh, how many words a day do you write? And that's to me usually a sign that this is someone who is either pretending to be a writer or knows very little about writing, you sit down and you do what you have to do for that day. Sometimes that's six words. Sometimes that's 6,000 words, right? You show up and you do what you have to do. That's what the job is. The idea that it's page count is focusing on outcomes rather than on process. You measure progress on a book, maybe the shortest time period would be weeks, but probably months, right? Like, it takes months or years for a book to come together and, and to be any good. And so when people are like, oh, you know, I put three hours in today and I'm 2% closer to being done. No, you're not. You show up every day and you put in the work and slowly but surely this accumulates in, in the way that every day we're getting older, every day your hair or your beard is growing or, or whatever. Like it's a process. You show up, you clock in, you clock out. And outcomes come from that. Like the same goes for marketing or selling a book. You know, people are interested in what a book does in its first week. But I think every single one of my books opening week now accounts for well under 1% of the total sales, right? And so the launch is meaningless. What matters is what you do week in and week out. Do you keep going? Do you not quit on it? Do you keep pushing it? Have you made something that's part of the larger conversation in some way? And so People are way too obsessed with results. They way undervalue just process or routine or, or ritual when it comes to getting those same results that they claim to want. You say if we aim for the trophy, that is outcomes like recognition, money or power in life, we'll miss the target. This podcast is about money and about happiness and about careers. And I think a lot of the times we're focusing on the wrong things and that we're thinking about, well, if I do this, I'll get money. If I yeah. do this, I'll get recognition or achievement. But it's the doing of that thing that makes up the hours and days of our lives. Sure. And thus, we find ourselves focused on the wrong thing and not happy as a result. Yeah, sure. I mean, at some point, I had this idea that I wanted to become a millionaire by the time I was 25. Like, I just had this mm -hmm. goal. 
It didn't end up happening exactly like that. I, I forget what age it actually ended up happening. But first off, like nobody throws you a fucking parade. Like nothing happens, right? Like it doesn't change. It doesn't change. Doesn't change anything. <laughs> totally true, man. It's totally, totally uh, true. But like, it, not only does it not change anything, it turns out that the money is actually a byproduct of the process of doing the things that you want to do. So it might be like, yeah, sure. Maybe you can save your way to $1 million, like, you know, picking up pennies on the ground and these systems you can come up with and you can kind of save your way there. But I found that I prefer Jim Collins has that concept of a flywheel where it's like when you get everything lined up and you really give it, eventually it just starts operating under its own power. And then you find out that, even your sense of what a goal was, like, hey, I want to accomplish X, was actually naive and probably underestimated what the real potential outcome was. So I, I think it, it, it's much more about like finding something you really enjoy doing that you're really good at that you would do for free, even if you weren't getting paid, when you sort of find that lane where you're the only person doing your thing or you're the absolute best one doing that thing, the money or the recognition they follow. But the benefit of it is that you actually care less because what you actually are excited about is that you keep getting to do the thing. Right. Your reward is that if you want to chase your dream, forget about whatever metrics you've used up to this point in your life to define success. Because the only thing you can be assured of if you want to become a painter or a comedian or a podcaster, for God's sake, is the opportunity to do that thing. Yes. That's what you get. And the answer to the question, what would happen if I gave it my all? That's like what you get. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to Casey Neistat one time and he said something. He was like, you know, you and I don't care about money. And I was like, we, we don't. I thought that we did. <laughs> uh, and he was like, look, no, he's like, if you really cared about money, you would work in advertising. He's like, you wouldn't be writing books. You would work in advertising. And then I sort of realized he's right. Maybe advertising doesn't resonate with people the same way, but it's like, if you really cared about money, you'd go work on Wall Street or whatever. Like, and so when I talk to authors and, you know, they're talking to me about like these sort of very small picture financial matters, you know, is the math better to self-publish or traditionally publish or whatever it is? Look, if you're in this to make money, you made a really stupid decision because writing books is like the worst possible way to get rich. You're selling a thing people don't really want that's really hard to do <laughs> and, you know, has really bad margins. Like, you'd pick the wrong business. You should go try to make money in something else first and then come back to writing if that's what you need to feel, like, safe or secure. And so I have some version of that conversation with a lot of people. I gave a talk to the Navy a couple months ago, and it was like, look, like, if you guys got in this to be like famous and important and well-known, like you picked the wrong profession. You got into this because you have some sense of duty or some love of country. So like, let's make sure that when we're making individual decisions about like what job to take or how to treat people or what to say in a, you know, a media interview, that what we're doing is in line with that larger value that we have. And so that that's something, you know, I think about if I'm negotiating a deal or I'm deciding, you know, do this or that. Ultimately, what I care about is writing books and having those books have impact. Obviously, I want to be compensated fairly, and I'm certainly not going to take less money than the market will bear. But I'm not going to, you know, like when you see these NFL players that are like sitting out a season to get a better contract, I'm somewhat of mixed mind on it because it's like, wasn't the whole point to play football for as long as you could play football? 
Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that five or six million dollars isn't a lot of money, but like, what if you tear your ACL on the first game of the season you're back? Like, are you going to be glad that you have three million dollars, or are you going to be mad that you lost one of your seven eligible, you know, seasons? Right. Yeah. Speaking of authors, not selling books the alternative name for this podcast was novelists in cars complaining that nobody fucking reads anymore yeah of course of course it's a hard business so you better if you're handing over your identity or your happiness in the business with what your weekly sales numbers are you're going to be really unhappy if your happiness is i can't believe i get to write novels then you know you have some semblance of control over your happiness no doubt about it and the road is way longer than i think anybody even can oh, imagine sure. how long it's going to take. All right, I'm going to list a few things, and I'd like you to, to offer some thoughts on how they get in the way of stillness. Sure. Ambition. Yeah, ambition makes it impossible to be happy with what you currently have. You know, my goal was to write a book. That's what I thought success was. And before it came out, I changed my mind, and now it had to be a best-selling book. And then, you know, before the paper was even framed, for that accomplishment, I was selling, I was selling the next one, you know, and, and then it's the same. We were just constantly moving the goalposts. I'm not saying ambition doesn't spur us forward, but at the same time, it, it is the enemy of contentment. Envy. Ooh, I mean, very similar thing. What happens is you're very happy with what you have, and then you see what other people have, and all of a sudden you're not happy with what you have anymore. And we tend to do a very insidious thing with envy, where it's where we go like, again, we we're talking about Trump. It's like you go like, oh, but look, Donald Trump's president. I would like to be president. And you don't think, oh, but then I would have to be Donald Trump, right? Like you think I get to be me and president. And it's like, um, no, they require certain compromises. Workaholism. Similar thing. I mean, it is, are you driving the work or is the work driving you? I think this is, this is a very common thing. And I think what tends to happen is that, you know, the things in our personal life, stillness. These things are unpredictable. They're hard to control. It can be volatile, but like your work is always there. You always have control over your work. You know, it's like, so you have an argument with your wife that can be baffling and unpredictable and totally illogical, but your work is exactly as you want it to be. So you can go to your office and bang out emails and be the master of your domain, or you can sit uncomfortably in your own living room and try to solve this problem, right? And so (laughs) which one do we gravitate towards? We gravitate towards the easy one. The one where you can check boxes and feel like you've done something. Yes, yes. You've identified, I think you've done a great job identifying the problem. You use some quotes, MLK, Martin Luther King diagnosed, there's a violent civil war raging within each of us between our good and bad impulses. You clearly diagnosed that we all have barking dogs in our heads. Yeah. And that in our current days of social media and technology, we are overfed and undernourished. What is there to do? How does the average person help themselves on the road to stillness? I think routine is a, is a huge way to get there. I mean, when I look at most people who claim to be overworked or overwhelmed or have no stillness, and then I look at their personal life, it's a total mess. They have a part-time job trying to pick people up on dating apps They don't wake up at the same time. They don't go to bed at the same time. Every meal is a set of choices between doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing. They have sort of no form of exercise in their life. They have no quiet time, period, let alone to do any sort of reflection or sort of work on themselves. They've got childhood traumas that they haven't dealt with. So 
I think one, we start with what time we're going to wake up in the morning, what time are we going to go to bed in, in the evening? What hobbies are you going to have? What exercise are you going to do? Why don't you try getting in a steady relationship that requires you to be a better person? Why don't you, you know, sp- spend some time with a journal in the morning? You know, mm-hmm. why don't you quit your job that you hate? And, uh, you know, so I don't want people to think that stillness is just this thing you magically solve in your mind. I mean, I think you can think your way part of the way there, but ultimately it's going to be determined by some decisions you make, whether that's reading books or sitting down with a therapist or deciding to go on a friend purge. I think you got to do stuff. You got to work your way there. It's not just going to happen. And it's not just binary. You don't just wake up and say, I'm still today. I mean, you can make small incremental changes that have big impact. Yeah. I mean, so Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor, he was saying that happiness can't be pursued. It must ensue. And I think stillness is a similar idea. It's sort of you set the conditions and then it appears briefly in fleeting moments and you enjoy it while it's there and you understand that it comes and goes in the same way that enlightenment is also not binary. You don't have it or you don't have it. It's a sort of a a thing out in the distance that you're working towards on a regular basis and you're always getting a little closer and maybe you can smell it or taste it, but you never fully possess it. Mm. Marcus Aurelius said, which, by the way, I love the fact that in all these books about Stoicism, and then Daily Stoic, your site and daily email, that you refer to Marcus as Marcus, yeah. that he's your boy, yeah. <laughs> you know, that he's, he's the guy. So sure. Marcus said, the happiness of your life depends on the quality of your thoughts. Sure. I've been working hard to try to implement stillness for a year and a half or so in life, and I've been meditating. And yet when I meditate, one of the things that happens is I can see how noisy my head sure. actually is. And all the thoughts that go through there are thoughts about professional success. They're about achievement. They're not about like, how can I be the best dad I can be? They're not about like, how can I make a good impact on the world? So how can we teach ourselves to think better thoughts? I think the Buddhist would say is, is it sort of you let these thoughts happen, but you don't have to actually take hold of them, right? So it's mm. you're, you're sitting there, you're meditating, or you're sitting on a plane and you're waiting for it to take off and you're like, oh, I, I want to make a this amount of money this year. I, I can't believe so-and-so is doing this. Like, I just, I, I can't wait to beat this person or whatever. You can go like, that's what my mind is thinking. You don't have to identify with these thoughts, right? So I think part of it is going like, okay, that's this sort of thing that's sort of passing through and I'm just going to let it keep on going. I don't have to reach up and grab it and sort of hold on to it. That's one thing. And and so it's like the realizing that this idea that we're not our thoughts, that thoughts are just these, in some cases, these sort of spontaneously occurring entities in our minds, and that we can choose which ones ultimately we're going to have as our values and, and which ones we're not going to do that with. But the idea of setting better priorities is something I, I sort of think about in my own life. It's very easy, again, because your career is very measurable. It's easy to see, I performed at Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. I got up six times this week, or you know, I, I wrote three articles, or my podcast got however many downloads. That's all very measurable. But was I a better dad, yes or no? That's much more amorphous. And so we tend to gravitate towards what's measurable. So like, how can we try to set better priorities in our lives where we are actively working on those things. To me, this is something journaling is really good for because you can sort of set intentions and then measure yourself against those intentions. So it's like, hey, you know, I want to be more patient around the house. 
So you write this to yourself. And then, you know, two days later, you're like, okay, how have I been the last two days? And you're like, uh, <laughs> not patient at all. You know, and so, uh, you know, how, how do you sort of work on those issues? Again, your boss is going to give you a performance review. Your family is not going to give you a performance review. So you have to do that for yourself. And if you're not going to do it, nobody's going to do it. And of course, right. you're not really going to get any better at it. One of the key grounding points of stoicism is the concept of memento mori. Mm-hmm. And literally translated, remember, you will die. Yes. So if we're all going to die, does any of this matter? No. Does this just descend into nihilism? No, I think to a certain extent, that's very freeing. It's not that it's nihilism, but it's like someone was saying to me the other day about being remembered. And it's like, you're definitely not going to be remembered. And even if you were, what good would it do you? Like, you're dead, you know? And Mm. you hear Marcus Reales talk about this over and over again. He's like, who remembers Vespasian? That's like the emperor, like three <laughs> emperors before Marcus Aurelius. He's like the right. guy who had my job like three generations ago. Right, Nobody yeah. even knows who he is. And I mean, Who's again, Harry Truman. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, who even knows who Marcus Aurelius is? I mean, sure, there's like some of us that do. But I mean, again, most people think he's that guy that dies at the beginning of Gladiator. Like uh, nobody knows. <laughs> and even if right. they didn't, right, like what good does it do Marcus? He's dead. And so it's not that that goes nothing matters, but I think it goes trading the things that we know are good, you know, being a good person, being a good dad, being present, taking care of yourself, you know, doing your best work, whatever. These can't be compromised for doing something that we delusionally tell ourselves will give us posthumous fame. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We go oh, yeah, so-and-so was a horrible person, but look at all the money they donated to charity, you know, and now there's still hospitals with their name on them. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. so? Was the trade worth it? Probably not. The idea of of Memento Mori is not that none of this matters. It's that this moment right now really matters because it's the only thing you have for certain. And so do you want to be a good person in this moment or do you want to be a bad person in this moment? Do you want to chase temporary pleasure in this moment? Or do you want to do what you're actually truly capable of and called to do in this moment? And this sort of decision is yours. Mm. I'd like to know a little bit more about how you implement these things personally. What's your typical day like? It depends. I mean, I think earlier in my life and career, I was very much about a routine. And Mm -hmm. now I'm much more about like having routines or having a sort of rhythm that Mm -hmm. I go back to even or despite the interruptions to that routine. Um, I mean, that's one of the things that having kids has been very humbling uh, for is like, I don't get to choose when I wake up. I don't choose what time I go to places like their nap schedule determines these things. And it's on a moving target on a daily basis. It sort of depends. But I mean, generally, I like to get up early. I go for a walk in the morning. I try to write as early as possible, get the important things done at the beginning of the day. I try to limit the amount of decisions that I have to make during the day. I limit the amount of things that are scheduled during the day. Like if I pull up my calendar, let me see. Today I had two things scheduled for the entire day. I want to have as little things scheduled so I can, if anything, I'm not doing scheduled in the calendar. I'm doing the most important thing to me, which is writing. And then after that, spending time with my family. Everything else is, there's no room for anything else. 
you're now a very in-demand speaker and you write prolifically. How do you keep yourself free of being overwhelmed with, you could speak I presumably every single day of the year if you wanted to. I don't think quite that much, but sure. I mean, you could speak as much as you almost want to, right? I mean, yeah. how do you decide what's enough or what your goals are for that part of your working life? One decision I, I made, I'll give you two sort of practical things. One, I hired a speaking agent because mm -hmm. I knew that when the inquiries come to me, my instinct is to say yes. And <laughs> I had trouble sort of asking for whatever the sort of market would actually bear. I think more like I wouldn't ask a human being for this much money. But if I have an agent there, sort of have a less emotional reaction to it. And then it took me a lot of work and a lot of time to get to a, having the luxury of being able to say this. But I also made this, I just don't talk for free. A lot of people are like, hey, you know, come, it'll be good for exposure or come, you, know, you can sell books in the back of the room or we'll buy 50 copies or whatever. Speaking is a little bit different than comedy in that, like, it's not individual fans that are supporting it. And it's not so much about reps as it is you're speaking to a multi-billion dollar corporation like they have money, you know. Um, <laughs> it, it was even interesting for me, like, you know, I get inquiries to speak to, like, government groups or the military. And the first time I got this, I was like, oh, these soldiers, they sacrifice so much. Of course, I should go talk to them for free. And then it was like, wait, they're not paying for this. The defense budget is like <laughs> 60, like 60 cents of every tax dollar goes to the Department of Defense. I don't feel bad asking this multi-trillion dollar agency to pay for the time that I'm giving them. So, I mean, when mm -hmm. it was just like, look, I don't speak for free. And so that means that I end up having to say no to people who are friends of mine. Or I have to go like, hey, I know we've known each other for 15 years, but I'm going to pass you to a person and that person is going to talk to you about what you're asking me about as if we're strangers and that this is a business transaction because it is a business transaction mm -hmm. and you are asking me, you know, to leave my family. And, and I just, interesting sort of money dilemma. I have a flight that I have to take to like Eastern Europe. I'm giving a talk in November. It was like, okay, I can leave at 11 a.m. and fly business class or I can leave at 5 p.m and fly economy. And they're actually both free because I'm flying with miles or whatever. And it's all sort of part of the fee or whatever. And it's like, okay, what am I going to do? Six hours at home on a Sunday, you know, worth trading for a slightly more comfortable seat on an airplane. You, you can, these, are <laughs> these are tough decisions. But I'd but, say the over-under is like four hours. I don't know, man. It's That's a valuable seat up front. Yes, yes. But anyways, you have to decide sort of what's important to you and what you're prioritizing. And then you have to sort of constantly check yourself against those decisions. And you end up saying no to cool stuff on a pretty regular basis. But that's life. How do you decide how much money you need to make every year? Because if you wanted to maximize money, yes. you would have a different schedule than you do right now. You would have more than two engagements on your calendar today. Yeah, right. I, I'm sure there's something I could have done that would make more money today. But ultimately, what I have to remind myself is, and this is where you learn some of these things by trial and error, is that how do I calculate? I could have written two pages in a book that could make many times what I would make over the course of my life, these two pages in a book, obviously compiled with other pages in a book, would add up to be worth a lot more money than a speaking gig or, you know, a consulting opportunity or whatever it is. So I have to remind myself there's an opportunity cost to the things that I'm saying yes to. And I'm not always good at it. And I definitely mess up. I don't go into the year going, here's how much money I want to make. And in fact, my business is somewhat weird because I have books and I have speaking and I have consulting and I have investments. 
So I honestly, like, uh, I usually don't find out how much money I made until, like, the summer of the following year when the taxes are finally <laughs> compiled, which is a, probably a, a function of my prioritization that, I, you know, I'm, it's not that important to me because I try to live mm-hmm. below my means. But also, like, again, the profession that I'm in, the primary thing is about doing the work, not tallying up exactly how much the work is worth and what I'm trying to get out of it on an annual basis. Has that changed from five years ago or eight years ago when you were just starting out? Yeah, of course. I mean, look, it was the numbers were much smaller eight years ago. And there was, <laughs> uh, you know, I was like I had one book. And so there was right. an advance for said book. And then there was every couple months there was like a speaking gig or whatever. Right. So I could do that math in my head. You know, now there's just different things. I mean, I have 10 books, right? And, and each book is on a bi-annual, like twice a year royalty schedule. And it's based on when they come out. So it's like, it's just not, I don't get a monthly check. You know, it's very lumpy. And with books, you get advances. So some of my books have earned out. Some of the books haven't earned out. You know, it's a weird, strange profession. So I think, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think that I'm in the profit maximization phase of my career. I'm in the do the important work in the prime of my career phase and the profit maximization when things slow down a little bit. Stillness is the key, the movie. <laughs> yes, sure. Or the video game. I yeah. don't know. I see, I I see merchandise a going. movie, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to accomplish from here on out? What's your mission? I sort of have three goals as a human being. One is to write more books that I'm proud of. The other is to stay married. And the other is to be a good father. <laughs> Those are like the three things that I just sort of think about in terms of my goals. I don't have any like this, how many books I want to sell or, you know, I want to run for public office or, you know, I want to win this prize or I don't really think in terms of that. And I think that goes to what we're talking about earlier in terms of process versus outcome. Like I know for the most part, you know, barring like traumatic brain injury or a blacklist or something, I can continue to produce books that I'm proud of. I would say that's 90% in my control. And, you know, how those books sell, how they are received, so on and so forth, that's considerably less in my control. So I I try to make that less of my goal. One of the uh, first books of yours that I read was Conspiracy, which for those who have not read it, it is fascinating. Thank you. That story is unbelievable. How much of your writing do you want to do more business journalism and how much do you want to do more reflection on philosophy and things like that? To go to what we were just talking about, I'll give you that is my worst selling book. It sold quite well. It's not I'm like hanging my head in shame about it, but I think it's my best book. I like to think every book that I do is better than the last one. That's how I, you know, keep myself going. But like when that came out, that was my best book, and it didn't sell nearly as well as other books that I think are not as good as it. If my identity is going to be tied up in, you know, how it does, that's going to be really unfortunate for a lot of reasons. One, I think Trump sort of swallowed the media cycle. So that's like a reason that books like that have had trouble breaking through. Also, there was this weird thing with Amazon. Like typically when you put a book out, Amazon substantially discounts it, right? Like books are never their list price on Amazon. For whatever reason, for like all the way up until close to the end of the first month, the price never budged. So it sold for like $25 when Mm. all my other books are like $15. We have no idea why this happened. It could have been a technical glitch. It could have been people at Amazon didn't like the book. It could have been a whole number of things. It could have been, you know, they were testing something and my book was the test. I don't know what it was, but the point was it probably cost me 
10 or 15% of my first year sales for that book. So again, mm. the more you do this, the more you are exposed to random swings of good luck and bad luck. And you got to be able to look in the mirror and know that you did what you wanted to do. The ball wasn't bouncing your way there. Were you able to call on your stoic training and keep it in perspective? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, you certainly are going to have firm calls with your publisher about like, how do we fix this? Because maybe... Maybe it's actually not a problem that's outside your control. Maybe it's somebody's mm -hmm. fault. You know, flipped a switch. And if you, you know, if, if you, you know. It, <laughs> switch it, it back. Yeah, right. You, you got to figure that out. But ultimately, it's like, okay, I did this. The people who read it thought it was good. I know it's good. It's going to find its audience over time or it's not. I have to get back to work on stillness. I turned immediately to the next book, which is ultimately, I think, the, the greatest therapy there is for success or failure. And again, all your books I found very interesting, but for different reasons. Some are about reflection and about life priorities, but Conspiracy was a story, you know, and it was a really compelling story. The story, I think you have to give credit to the insane people involved. But absolutely, <laughs> I wrote the book to see if I could write that kind of book. Like I was interested in the challenge of swinging at a different kind of pitch. I think you cranked it out of the ballpark. Thank you. Most authors don't have the ability to control their own destiny. Yes. As you've built a brand, you have built a direct connection with many, many of your fans. And, sure. the, and the primary way that you're doing that is through Daily Stoic. Will you talk a little bit about what you're doing at Daily Stoic? Yeah, so we wrote this book a few years ago. My agent and I actually did it together, which is pretty unusual. He did all the translations. It was actually his idea to do the project, so I, I give Steve a lot of credit. But going into it, I said, look, I think it's interesting to write a page-a-day book, but what I'd really be interested in is a platform where I produce something every day for people because what could that add up to over a long period of time? And so the domain dailystoic.com cost $6,000. It was not a fun purchase for something you don't know if it's going to work or not, uh, especially because it was supposed to be $3,000 and the guy doubled the price when he found out who I was. But I started just sending this email out every day and then, you know, community grew around it. And then I thought, well, I have access to these people. Why don't I make things related to the, you know, the philosophy? And I was like, I don't want to make t-shirts. I don't want to sell stickers. I want to sell things I would actually use. And so the first thing we made was this memento mori coin that you carry around in your pocket. It's sort of a physical reminder of, of the philosophy. And that came because I was looking on Etsy to see if I could buy something like that and it didn't exist. And I thought, well, look, I'll make this and then we'll sell them. And, you know, I'm not going to make a coin for myself. And so we did it and it's turned out to be a very successful business. But more than that, it's given me a different sort of relationship with the audience. And like you said, you just control your own destiny. Like, you know, for this book, for stillness, I have like mailing addresses of mm. people who are my readers. I can mail them an announcement that the book is coming out in a way that I could never do before because I actually have a book publishing, like the movie business or sports. You have so many layers between you and the actual paying customer. I mean, right. I sell my book to a publisher who themselves is a conglomerate, who sells that book to book chains and to Amazon, and then those people sell it to my readers. And so to be able to cut out the middleman and go, look, I have this thing, it's for sale, here's what it costs, buy it if you want it, has been very interesting. So last night I did a uh, show at a brewery here in town. I'm doing the show and the host mentions my podcast and I'm on the way out the door a couple of guys stopped me. We start talking. And then he goes, well, tell me about your podcast. And I said, well, we talk about money and we explore how our relationship with money leads us towards or away from happiness. I've had Adam Carolla, Dr. Drew, a few other people on. 
And I said, tomorrow I'm really excited because I'm talking to one of my favorite authors, Ryan Holiday. He goes, you're going to talk to Ryan Holiday tomorrow? I said, yeah. And he pulls out his wallet. And what's he pull out? No way. The Memento Mori coin. Oh, and so that's I was fantastic. Like, Wasn't oh, that's that cool? So cool? Yeah, that is yes. that is awesome. To me, ultimately, again, like I'm not saying that, that I don't turn a profit selling these things, but like... If I really wanted to make money, I would, you know, be hustling cryptocurrencies or something to, to sell, you know, philosophically inspired pieces of metal is not where the money is, but it is a very meaningful experience. And that's my favorite part of doing it. Well, you know, you're saying earlier, if you find the thing that you're completely dedicated to and you just do it and do it well, you'll find your niche eventually. And yes. Yeah, I think you're as good an example of that as I can think of. And, oh, thanks. You know, your writing has entertained, informed, and inspired me. And I just want to say sincere thank you for you doing the work that you're doing. Oh, that's so cool. Well, I appreciate it. Okay, so dailystoic.com is the right place for people to find you. Anything else that we want to talk about before we jump off? No, it's uh, Daily Stoic, and then I'm uh, at Ryan Holiday and ryanholiday.net pretty much everywhere as well. Ryan, thanks for joining us today. Of course, thanks for having me. There you go. Hey, if you didn't know who Ryan Holiday was before, I think you can understand why I find him to be so fascinating, not only as an author who has built a brand and, yes, a business around a 2,000-year-old philosophy, but as an advocate that has helped introduce some principles of behavior into my life that has uh, honestly made my life better. So if you haven't read his books, I strongly recommend them. Dailystoic.com is a great place to sign yourself up for daily reminders of how to do the day better. Let's jump to takeaways real quick. Number one, nobody throws you a parade. Michael bleep that. I hope I haven't offended you, but it's true. If you put too much faith in the trophy of your efforts and not enough in the process of doing the thing that is supposed to deliver you satisfaction, I promise you, you'll be disappointed. Just like Ryan, when I got to a certain point, made a certain amount of money, I was like, I feel cool. Uh, is this all there is? Why is nobody throwing me a parade? It was great to get out of debt. As I've said many times, the richest I ever felt is when I paid off my student loans, but nobody threw me a parade then. I just felt better inside doesn't happen the other way around when you get to your first million or however many million. All right. Second, we don't control what happens to us. We control how we respond. This is a theme that keeps coming up on the podcast. You might recall Laura Delazona from Stanford University talked about this and Viktor Frankl's work about his experience in a concentration camp. Think about that. We don't control what happens to us. We control how we respond. If you can control your behavior and your responses in a concentration camp, surely you can do it at Starbucks when the barista gets your order wrong. I need better control there. I'm sure you might also. The barking dogs in our head, this is number three. You know what? The world would be a better place if we were all more aware, not just of the way other people felt, but of the thoughts that are going on inside of our heads and for me, the best thing I've done recently, past couple of years anyway, is starting to meditate. Even if it's as simple as sloppy app-based where you just turn your brain off for 10, 20 minutes and try to let your thoughts go and observe what's happening in your head, you'll see that you're working with a lot of barking dogs in there. And it's not like it's dangerous, but when you move out into the world and have to interact with the rest of society and you've got all these horrible dogs barking at you inside your head... You'll be better if you at least know they're there. Next week, I've got an interview with a gentleman who I met in Kenya. His name is Mako. He is a Maasai warrior. He is a very interesting guy, and he will share insights into the Maasai culture and what it's like in modern-day Africa on the Maasai Mara. I hope you will join me then. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.